there are triggers in our lives, places that when pushed and pulled, our emotions begin to respond. For me, the month of May is always one of those trigger months. You see, uh, 30 years ago, in 1992, I was a young pastor, three months into a pastorate in Daytona Beach, Florida. When on Mother's Day weekend, actually the Saturday before Mother's Day at 2 a.m., my phone rang. The voice on the other end was uh, a teacher at the Christian school that I happened to be president of while I was pastor of the church. And the voice said, Pastor, can you come to the ER at the hospital? Michelle has been shot. Michelle was a young lady whose great-grandparents had actually been involved in the founding of our church. She was 17 years old. I knew Michelle very, very briefly because I was getting to know everybody at that place three months into a pastorate. And, and when I arrived at the hospital, I immediately recognized her mom, a very faithful member of our church who worked at our school. And as I began to hear the story unravel, it, it was not a pleasant story, and I used the term unravel importantly, intentionally. Because you see, Michelle had chosen on Friday night to trade off with a coworker so that she could come to church on Sunday, on Mother's Day with her mom. And when she and one of the other folks who were working that night to close up at Taco Bell on Bevel Road, a road named for her great-grandparents, a, a, a store just blocks from her home. Two teenage boys, brothers, 18 and 16, accosted her and her co-worker while they were taking out the garbage at closing at 1 a.m. They took them into the store at gunpoint. And there they, there they herded them into the cooler tied their hands behind their back and shot or stabbed all four of them execution style. I tell you that story because three of those people lived. Michelle died on Mother's Day, 1992. And the reason I tell you that story in this week when the news has been filled with the horror from an elementary school in Texas is because of the trigger that it put in me for the text that I'm about to share with you today. Because you see, I never before in my life and never since have been in the place where I needed to have a press conference in order to handle the details of a funeral. Because when Michelle passed on Mother's Day, 1992, in the afternoon, our church family was gathering for a Sunday evening service at 6 p.m. And as I left the hospital and drove to the church for that evening service, I pulled into the parking lot to see news cameras and reporters talking to the people from our church. When they pointed to me as the pastor, I, I very quickly asked them to remove themselves from the premises so that our people could be together and worship. 
And on Monday morning, the headmaster of the school and I held a press conference to deal with all the questions. By that time on Monday, the teenage brothers who had shot and had ultimately killed Michelle had been arrested. And in that press conference, there was a, a young reporter from the local television station, the, the affiliate with Orlando Station, who, uh, after all the details had been shared, asked me a question. It's the trigger and why I tell you the story. The question was simply this, Pastor Kerry, in light of the fact that Michelle's family has been a longtime member of this congregation, in light of the fact that, that there's been this, this horrible thing in their family, I need to ask you, what is the family's position on the death penalty for the two people who killed her? I was stunned. The audacity. And I'll be honest, it was, it was all that I could do to control myself in that moment. And I looked at the young lady who was the reporter and I said to her, I said, ma'am, let me, let me explain something to you. These people have lost a daughter who's been gone less than 24 hours. Right now, they, they are simply in the midst of their grief. They are simply in the midst of their pain. They've not had an opportunity to, to think through and, and work through, but let me tell you what I know about them. I know them to be people of faith. I know them to be people who've put their future and their children in the hands of God. So what I would like you to know is this. We're not about to sit here and make a political statement. Our job is to love and support and grieve with a family who has lost their child. There'll be a time at the appropriate time for us to deal with the ramifications of the choices these two teenage brothers have made. But this is not the time because this is the time for us to love and support a family. I told you, May's always a trigger. This May has been an even deeper trigger. And as I've been talking to you over the last few weeks about what it means to be an untoxic person, a, a person who's peculiar because of your faith in Jesus Christ, a, a person who is focused on, and, on other people's needs rather than your own needs, a, a, a person who is, who is not contributing to the toxicity of our culture, but, but someone who is finding the hope of Jesus Christ, it appears to me, it occurs to me deep inside my soul when that trigger went off this week that perhaps, perhaps we as a people of God gathered here on campus, gathered online, later this week on demand, might need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul from the second chapter in his letter to this church at Colossae, where he's trying to instruct them on how to respond to the turmoil, to the, to the problem, to the, to the pain that's going on in their life. Because whether or not you've ever sat where I sat on Mother's Day 
1992 as a 17-year-old breathed her last breath, or whether your life has been full of kinds of pain, the truth of the matter is you are God's child. You are his son. You are his daughter. And if you have called on Jesus Christ to be your savior, to be the one who's in control of your life, to make of you a brand new person from the person you were before you met him, then this morning what I simply want to invite you to do is to realize that the key to being an untoxic person is to be someone who is Christ-centered. Someone who is so centered in Jesus Christ that you allow him to guide you through his spirit, not just to forgive you of your sins, but to but to lead you in paths of righteousness. Now, what do you mean righteousness, pastor? Is that like this code of ethics that we have to check the list on? No, no, righteousness is living the way God created you to live. Righteousness is living in a relationship with the one who knows you better than anyone else. Righteousness is the one who teaches us by being that for us. His name is Jesus Christ. Listen, as I read from Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 6. Paul's words to a church living in the midst of the interface between light and darkness. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus' name. You see, if we're going to be the people who can respond to the world of darkness, if we're going to be the people of light who follow Jesus Christ, then what we've got to do is understand exactly what Paul was talking about when he says to these people, therefore, because you've received Christ, as you received Christ, then you are to walk with Christ. You see, Christ-centered people find their identity in Jesus. The identity is not in your nationality. The, the identity is not in your language group. The identity is not in your race. The identity is not in anything except Jesus Christ who's forgiven you 
who's redeemed him, and he supersedes all else. Look at it again, those first two verses. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so get this, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, when you, when you become a person who learns how to walk in the way Jesus called you to walk, you become built up in the faith so that all the human, all the human dividing marks get wiped away. Oh, it's not that they're wiped away and you lose your identity. No, no, it's that you see a greater identity. Uh, some years ago, I was at a, a lectureship at Stetson University in Deland, Florida. Uh, Dr. Clyde Fant was the campus pastor there at that time. He had invited my mentor, James Earl Massey, to be um, the speaker for that week. Dr. Massey had, had a tremendous effect on many lives around the world. And on that particular day, he had been invited to be a part of a panel discussion on the issue of race in the life of the church. Dr. Massey was an African-American man raised in the African-American community in Detroit pastor for a quarter of a century at what was called Metropolitan Church of God in Detroit. In this particular lectureship, he was lecturing alongside on the panel with a libertarian theologian, I'm sorry, a liberation theologian from the University of Chicago, as well as a theologian from Yale University. In the, in the panel discussion, someone from the, from the congregation raised the question because the other two people who were lecturing happened to be Caucasian. And the question came about race. The question was, Dr. Massey, uh, we've heard that you and Martin Luther King Jr. were good personal friends. And he was obviously assassinated. He was taken from us. How can you, as, a, as an African-American man, still preach unity in the body of Christ? Isn't there a place when you have to rise up out of your ethnicity, out of your race, in order to, in order to stand before God and say, this is who I am because this is how I was born? I, I have watched Dr. Massey in many settings. I've never seen this side of him. He, he rose to his full stature. He leaned across the platform. He looked distinctly at the individual who happened to be Caucasian, who had raised the question and looked him square in the eye and said, sir, I don't know you and you don't know me. So you have made assumptions about me based on the color of my skin. And I would say to you that that is indeed itself racist. But what I would also say to you is this, on the day that I laid down my life to Jesus Christ, I succumbed to a new Lord of my life. And that Lord of my life is the Lord who brings people of all colors and all languages and all ethnicities together in a kingdom called the kingdom of God. And what I want you to know is that my identity is no longer in my heritage while I value my heritage. My identity is no longer in my educational background, although I've worked very hard for that. My identity is no longer in my own 
people group of faith. My identity is in Jesus Christ. My friends, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying to the church in Colossae. A church that was being hit with the the horrible things of heresy that were being taught to them, that, that Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, their willingness to walk with Jesus wasn't enough. That it wasn't sufficient for the times and troubles of the day, but instead that there was something more, something more they had to affiliate with, something more they had to think about, something more they had to embrace than Jesus. But when I learned that day on the campus of Stetson University was that no matter what your background, no matter who you are and where you're from, if you call the name of Jesus Christ, your, your dependency is upon him. Your identity is upon him. It's not in your nationality. It's not in your race. It's not in your economic level of privilege. Jesus Jesus is the center of your life. And on this Memorial Day weekend, on this, this last weekend in May, when all the triggers have gone off for me, when all the emotions have overwhelmed me, I can't help but think, what would the world look like if we as the people of God we're untoxic enough to find our identity totally in Jesus Christ. So much so that we walked in him. We lived the way he wanted us to live. That we were rooted in him. That we, we quite honestly, had our foundation and were built up in him. If the very essence of who we are was established not in anything else except our faith in Jesus Christ and the faith he develops in us. I think, no, no, I know that would radically change our reactions to the world. Because when you do that, when we walk as we received Jesus Christ, if we, if we live rooted in him with the foundation of faith, we become a people who are able to bring comfort to those who are mourning, who are able to dance with those who dance and weep with those who weep and bring into the world around us the light that overcomes the darkness, no matter how dark the darkness is. But Paul didn't stop there. He didn't just say, be Christ-centered by, by finding your identity in Christ. No, he said, listen, I want you to know that when you find your identity in Christ, sometimes you're going to lose your way. Sometimes you're going you're gonna to be in a place where you're not sure exactly where the next step is. But Christ-centered people find their way in Jesus. When you're in this relationship and you don't know the next I I had no clue what to say to that lady in a press conference after the murder of a teenager who just the Friday before had listened to me share my first message as the president of the school with the student body and had 
been a part of a junior class that sat to my left where they were assigned to sit? And who at the end of the message, I, I did something that I rarely ever do because I have just a few questions about it, but felt, but felt prompted by the Spirit of God on that day to ask the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would end up in heaven from the moment you died, you would be present with Jesus? I asked that question of, a, of several dozen, actually a few hundred high school and middle school students. And in that entire junior class, three pews full of kids, one child, one teenager from that class raised their hand and said, if I die tonight, I know I'm gonna be with Jesus. Her name was Michelle. One. And she died that night. Well, she was shot that night. She died 48 hours later. Christ-centered people find their way in Jesus even when they have questions. It's okay to have your questions. It's okay to, to have your seeking and your searching in your soul. But look what Paul said to that church in Colossae who were being told there's something more you need. You need something more than Jesus Christ. Look at what he said to them. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Some of you hear me read those words, and you're like, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about circumcision? I mean, is he talking about the physical act of circumcision on a male child? Is he talking about the circumcision of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament? What, what does he mean, the circumcision of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ? You have to know the first century culture to which he was speaking. You see, circumcision was a, was a way, a euphemism of speaking about your flesh. The act of circumcision was the removal of a piece of flesh from the body of a male, and the removal of that was a symbol of the removal of the sin in their life. It was a setting apart of those people for the holy purpose God had called them to. And what Paul is saying to these folks is this, listen, before you encountered Jesus, before you centered your life in Jesus, then you lived according to your flesh. You lived according to the sinfulness of your life. But, but now you've experienced Jesus. So you no longer need to walk in that sinfulness. You no longer need to walk uh, feeling as if there's something more. No, in Jesus, centered in Jesus, you find your identity and you find your way. And that way means that there are things that you used to do that you don't do anymore. That there are things that used to define you that don't define you anymore. Uh, that, that same church where I held the press conference and where we later that week held the funeral with massive crowds that were in the parking lots and loudspeakers to broadcast the service and hundreds of people. 
in that same church, the baptismal pool was, was on the platform. Not up like this one, but even with the platform. And, and every Sunday, I, I sat in front of that baptismal pool. And when we baptized people, they would come and, and be in that pool. You, you could see it. It was a part of the whole thing. And, and on one particular Sunday, we'd had a baptismal service, and, and I had baptized several people. And afterwards, I came out from the changing room. The service was over. I'm, I'm dressed to go home, and I look, and, and I see my two elementary-age sons. At the time, they were in first and third grade. And they are leaning over the edge of the baptistry. And as they're leaning over the edge of the baptistry, I knew the, the custodians had already pulled the plug and the water was draining out. And, and being boys, I, I looked at them and said, hey, boys, what are you doing? What, what are you looking at? Are you looking at, the, are you looking at, at the whirlpool that's created when the water goes down the drain? Is that what you're waiting on? Because they were kind of known to play in the water in the bathtub at home, right? And I said, uh, what are you doing? And they looked over. They said, no, Dad, we're, we're looking for the sins of the people. I said, the what? Well, you said that when someone is baptized, they, they go under the water, and, and it's a symbol of them dying to their old self and their sin, and they've been washed with Christ and brought into a new life. So we're just looking to see what sins are in here. You know what? They were just boys. But I think they were pretty smart. Because you see, a lot of people tend to approach Christianity with that mindset. It's a one-time thing. I come to an altar or I bow my knee or I'm baptized at a church service. And I've made a profession of faith, and, and I'm done now. My sins are washed away, and now I can just go on with my life. And that's not, a, that's not what Paul's talking about when he says we want you because you've experienced Christ to walk in Christ. That, that's not what he's talking about when he's talking about, hey, you now are of the new circumcision, the circumcision of Christ. What, what he's talking about is not this punctiliar action where suddenly once for all, everything's taken care of. No, he's talking about a relationship in which you have now given your whole self, given your whole heart to Jesus. And you're centered with your identity in Jesus. And you're trusting that Jesus is going to make a way for you when nobody else knows the way at all. You see, there are some of us in the Western church, maybe in the church around the world, who, who, who've mistakenly thought that all this stuff about Jesus, it's just, I make that decision and then it's just check the box and go on. But, but when you make the decision to, to let your identity be found in Jesus. When you let your life be marked by a trust in him to show you the way when it doesn't seem there is a way, then suddenly, suddenly you discover that he can be trusted with everything. This may mark 40, mark 30 years since... Um, since Michelle died. Four different times, the two teenage boys, the brothers, who took her life. 
who was given consecutive life sentences, one of whom was given the death penalty. Their cases continue to be brought back before the judges asking for a new verdict, a, a new sentence. And, and every time it does, her mom and dad, her friends, the three other people who were in the cooler, because by the way, they all lived. And one other of them was also a member of our church. And every time it gets brought back into the court systems uh, to, 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 to try and change the verdict or change the sentence, they are once again dragged through all the memories. Those memories never leave. I see that based on social media and contacts with those people. I, I'm never the same. And I will tell you that the people in Texas, the people in Buffalo, for those of you who are part of the Noblesville school system, you're never the same once violence enters in to your presumption of peace. Once the, the idyllic world that you have created in your mind, the, the, the world in which you think all is well and all is safe, is rattled by the reality of sin, nothing is ever the same. And Paul knew that. And that's why he wanted the people in Colossae to understand that when you center your life in Jesus Christ and find your identity in him and trust him to show you the way, he begins to build something in you. He begins to do something that, that actually takes you from being a toxic person to being someone who's untoxic and not just that you're untoxic, but you're actually a part of the healing for the toxicity because that's what God is calling the people of God to be in the 21st century is a healing for the toxicity that has paraded as Christianity in this country because in Jesus Christ, when our identity is in him and when we let trust him to show us the way through our sinfulness, through the darkness of the world, through the pain of our life, we discover his presence with us. Then, then, then we discover that there's hope in Jesus. Christ-centered people understand that the hope isn't in hope. The hope isn't in in us. I read one, one, one man whose writings I trust quite, quite well from what I've read over the last couple of years in his blog, who made an observation before everything happened this last Tuesday. It had to do with the fact that there were people who were, who were saying, we need, this from the, we need this from the Supreme Court, and we need this from the Congress, and we need this from the White House. And you know what he said? He said, find me a place in scripture where, where we as Christians are dependent upon any human government to give us the kingdom of God. My friends, Christ-centered people find their hope in Jesus, not in hope, not in a nation, not in an economic system, not in a denomination, not in a church background. But in Jesus. Uh, look at the way he said it. And you, 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the sinfulness. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. My friends, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the darkness, there is a light. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's called his people to be people of light. And if you've bowed the knee to Jesus, if you've crossed the line of faith, if you're a one who says, you know what, I am a Christian, not I'm a nationalist Christian, not I'm an American Christian, not I'm a Canadian Christian, not I'm a world citizen Christian, but I am a follower of Jesus Christ and I am a part of his kingdom, then you have been tasked with being the hope of Jesus Christ. For years I've taught you, hope is stronger than memory. Memories are strong, but hope is stronger. And the hope we have is not that things will just get better or not that someone else will make them better, but the hope we have is that Jesus Christ has already provided for your salvation and my salvation and the salvation of every person who's ever breathed. And the joy of our life is not the absence of pain, but is the presence of a commitment to sharing who Jesus really is. And so this morning, for those of you on campus, I'm gonna ask you if you, would, if you would stand with me. For those of you who are online, I'm gonna ask you if you would find a place where you can pray, where you can, where you can actually focus for just a moment or two. Because what I wanna do is I wanna pray for all of us that on this Memorial Day weekend, on this last Sunday in May, we would be people who are Christ-centered with our identity, Christ-centered with trusting him to show us the way forward, and Christ-centered in our willingness to find our hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Abba, Papa, thank you that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Thank you that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Thank you that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And I really thank you that he wrote to the church in Colossae, a group of people he had never personally met. Because when he writes to them, it's like he's writing to us because none of us ever met him either. And when he tells them that, that they can trust you, they can walk in you because you sent your one and only son for us and that you've called us to center our lives on him. And Lord, he's saying that to us too. In the midst of a world that seems like it's gone absolutely crazy this week, we know that you're the only one we can ever trust to give us our real identity, to give us a real hope. And some of us have lost our way. And so this morning, we come before you and we ask you, to show us the way 
whose name is Jesus, who is the truth, who is the light, not just for us, but for the entire world. For it's in his strong name that we pray.